The Biden administration plans to resume deporting people back to Venezuela, even as thousands of people flee the country every day. It's Friday, October 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, former President Donald Trump throws his support behind Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan to become the next Speaker of the House. Also this hour, the pushback against a new law in North Carolina that blocks the public from seeing certain documents on state government. It shields precisely those records on matters where folks from both sides of the aisle have said we should be more transparent. And you hear this band playing in an Afro-Cuban style, and then you'll keep walking and you'll still hear the same song now being interpreted maybe in a free jazz. A preview of this weekend's musical experiment in Boston at Jazz Along the Charles. Fog and clouds give way to sun today. It'll be near 70. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman, a jailed women's rights activist from Iran, has won this year's Nobel Peace Prize. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. Narges Mohammadi has led a campaign for women's rights in Iran that's become the biggest challenge to the regime there since it came to power in 1979. Mohammadi has been targeted for her activism. She's currently in Tehran's notorious Evin prison on charges that include spreading propaganda against the Iranian government. Altogether, the regime has arrested her 13 times, convicted her five times, and sentenced her to a total of 31 years in prison. That's Barrett Rice Anderson, chair of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, announcing the award. She called on Iran's government to release Mohammadi so that she can accept her prize in person at a ceremony in December. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. The Biden administration says it has no choice. It has to proceed with funding for the construction of some parts of a border wall in southern Texas. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the money was allocated during the Trump administration, and he says the law requires the money to be used to build some sections of the wall. From day one, this administration has made clear that a border wall is not the answer. That remains our position and our position has never wavered. President Biden campaigned on a promise that no parts of the border wall would ever be built during his administration. Officials in Ukraine say at least 51 people have now died because of yesterday's Russian missile strike in Ukraine's northeast. Rescuers are still searching the rubble. Ukrainian officials say there have been fresh Russian attacks today. A new analysis from a NASA research program has estimated the amount of farmland lost to fighting in Ukraine. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. Between 5 and 7 million acres of farmland have been abandoned as a result of fighting across Ukraine's winding front line. That's according to the analysis, which was shared with NPR by NASA's Harvest Program. In Balbeka, Reshev is the program's director. The area along the front line is some of the most important croplands in Ukraine. Much of that land has been left unplanted because of artillery fire. Russia and Ukraine trade thousands of rounds each day, and those shells land in fields. Becker, Reshef, and other experts say toxic pollution and unexploded ordnance will make it difficult to reclaim this farmland even after the war is over. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Syria's health ministry says at least 89 people were killed in a drone attack yesterday on a military academy ceremony. No one has claimed responsibility for the drones. Scores of people have reportedly been injured. You're listening 
to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. On Beacon Hill, House lawmakers are expected to vote later this month on updates to the state's gun laws. The legislation introduced yesterday limits firearms in public places, revamps gun licensing, and updates the assault weapons ban. The bill also adds regulations for untraceable ghost guns. Beacon Hill leaders say they're hopeful they'll get the law to the governor by the session's end. It faces opposition from groups like the Gun Owners Action League. As lawmakers debate gun safety measures, a new study finds that firearm injuries are among the leading cause of death for American children and teenagers. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, the analysis comes from a Boston-based pediatric injury doctor and her teenage daughter. The researchers studied data from the Centers for Disease Control covering the past decade. They found that fatal firearm injuries among kids under 18 rose by almost 90 percent. Dr. Rebecca Mannix of Boston Children's Hospital conducted the study with her 16-year-old daughter and says stricter gun regulations and fewer guns in people's homes would help. People who get firearms in their homes do so because they think they're protecting their families. And if they can understand the firearm is a bigger risk to their family, I think maybe we could bend the needle a little bit on this. The study, published by the American Academy of Pediatrics, found that fatal drug poisonings more than doubled over the same period, while fatal injuries from car crashes declined dramatically. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. There are new online dashboards to help Massachusetts residents track cases of COVID, flu, and RSV. Department of Public Health officials say the new resource is meant to give people the most important information at a glance. Officials plan to update the dashboards every Thursday. The musical celebration known as the Honk Festival gets underway today for the first time since the pandemic began. 33 bands from around the country are set to rock the streets of Somerville and Cambridge. John Bell is a trombone player whose band played the first Honk Fest 18 years ago. It's going to be very exciting. It's always fun to hear music. It's loud. It's not string band music. It's brass band music. So if you like the strong, loud music that's exciting and fun to dance to, the Honk Festival is a good place to be. Honk Fest performances are planned through Sunday. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. The Bruins won their final preseason matchup of the fall. They beat the Rangers 3-1 last night in New York. The Bees' regular season begins Wednesday. There's a dense fog advisory in effect until 11. Clouds will eventually give way to sun today. It'll be around 70. Cloudy with a chance for showers tonight in the low 60s. Cloudy with showers tomorrow and a high in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny on Sunday and highs in the low 60s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. The WNBA Finals open this weekend with two powerhouse teams. We'll look at the rivalry between the Las Vegas Aces and the New York Liberty. But first, it took just a few days to make Florida Republican Matt Gates one of the best-known members of Congress. Yeah, he made history and angered many in his own party by engineering the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Gates is a Trump ally and a member of the far-right House Freedom Caucus. He also faces a House ethics investigation into allegations that include violating sex trafficking laws, sexual misconduct, illicit drug use, and the misuse of campaign funds. His constituents are the people living in Florida's first congressional district, which covers the area around Pensacola. NPR's Greg Allen has been talking to Republican voters in the district and joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Lily. So, as we said, a lot of Republicans in Congress really angry at Matt Gates right now. How are his constituents feeling? Well, I was uh, at the Republican Club meeting in Florida's Santa Rosa County last night. This is right in the heart of Gates's district. It's this is the area, as you say, in Florida's panhandle that's strongly Republican. Everyone I talked to here said that they love Matt Gates because of his actions this week. They like mm-hmm. what he did. Here's one Republican voter, Sharon Hawthorne. Before this happened, I had mixed feelings. Um, I liked some things that he did. I didn't like other things that he did. But I love the fact that he took this stand for us. And I feel like that this is the best thing that could have happened for the Republicans, for Democrats, for America. You know, this was a conservative crowd in a deep red district, but that was the near unanimous opinion I heard last night. As one person said to me, they believe if a system has gone awry, then you need to break it. Mm. I mean, but Matt Gates took these actions against Kevin McCarthy after McCarthy made a deal with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown, which worried a lot of people, the idea of a shutdown. It would impact people in Gates's district, home to military bases, veterans, active duty military. Did that go into constituents thinking on Gates' move? Yeah, you know, it's not really clear to me. Uh, you know, I did speak to Stan Jandura, who's a retired Marine and a Republican activist in Santa Rosa County. He says he doesn't think many there really were concerned about the threat of a government shutdown. It's a colloquial term to shut down. It's not real shutdown. Government employees are still going to get them a check once it opens back up. So who does it hurt? It hurts the political party that is up there. You know, there is some uncertainty among people I spoke to about how this will play out for the Republican Party in the long term. Some conceded there could be fallout that hurts Republicans in next year's midterm elections if a new speaker isn't quickly seated and Congress doesn't soon get back to work. You know, as we talked about, Matt Gates's Republican colleagues are not happy with him for leading this effort, blowing up the session, then sending out fundraising appeals, bragging about it. To his supporters, is this behavior appealing, off-putting? What are they saying? Right. I don't people really don't care about this. As one person said to me, what issues don't members of Congress fundraise around? Mm. Among the people I spoke to, there's a deep dissatisfaction that Democrats control the Senate and the White House. Many told me they feel that in their words, they need to take back their country. They hope the next speaker will be one who listens to them and acts on their concerns. Several said they were excited that former President Trump is reportedly planning to visit Congress next week. And they're hoping he might perhaps maybe be the next Republican House speaker. Hmm. NPR's Greg Allen in Pensacola, Florida. Thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome.
Guatemala is in the middle of a huge political crisis. Yeah, okay, so here's what's happening. A presidential election was held in August. The results were already certified, but the attorney general and other officials have made it clear that they want to challenge those results. And that's led protesters to take to the streets all over the country. Guatemala is now entering a fifth day of a national strike. NPR's Ader Peralta is in the middle of it all in Guatemala City, and he joins us now. Hi, Ader. Hey, Leila. So start by telling us how we got here and what's at stake. So look, as you mentioned, this starts earlier this summer when Bernardo Arevalo wins the presidential election. And this was a huge surprise because Arevalo uh, came from a small reformist party and he was the anti-corruption candidate. No one thought he could win. And almost as soon as he does win, the ruling elite here uh, who have been terrified of actually being held responsible for their corruption, well, they have done their best to undo this win. Uh, The Electoral Commission actually certified the results, but the Attorney General has said she is investigating the President-elect's party, and on Saturday, her office raided the Electoral Commission. The investigators ripped into bags of elections material, and then by force, they left with a bunch of electoral materials, and they haven't said why. One constitutional expert I spoke to says that Guatemala is clearly in extra-constitutional territory, uh, where important branches of government are fighting with each each other for supremacy. And that fight uh, may very well determine if Bernardo Arevalo, who was elected in a landslide, will actually take power in January. You said that this may determine the fate of Bernardo Arevalo. How have people taken to the streets? Are they defending the results? What are they saying? What are you seeing? Well, look, uh, this is the fifth day of a national strike, uh, and some major roads across the country have been blocked. And here in Guatemala City, an encampment has grown outside of the attorney general's office. There are tents, there are food stations, the fence around the building is plastered with posters calling for the resignation of the attorney general and her allies. And what I heard was indignation. Noe Gomez Barrera says when Bernardo Arevalo won, he felt hope that Guatemala could change, uh, that they could finally build the just and honest nation. And when he saw the attorney general's office raid the electoral commission, he was enraged. He picked up his things and he came to the protest. Let's listen. No ha respetado la decisión del pueblo. And he's saying they have not respected the will of the people. And that's why we are here to tell them that we don't want to see them here anymore because they are the shame of Guatemala. Wow. So where does this go now? It's worth repeating that these election results have already been certified and there was hope that the Constitutional Court would step into this debate and tell the Attorney General that these elections are settled. But that is not what's happening. Instead, the courts here seem to be siding with the Attorney General and they've also ruled that some of the protests are illegal. So they seem to be laying the groundwork for security forces to clear the streets. So the table is set for a confrontation because the protesters here say that they will not leave the streets until the Attorney General and her allies resign. That's NPR's Ader Peralta in Guatemala City. Thank you, Ader. Thank you. As far back as last winter, the odds were on two talent-heavy teams to go to the WNBA Finals, and the predictions came true. Last year's champs, the Las Vegas Aces, take on the New York Liberty in Game 1 Sunday in Las Vegas. And joining us now is basketball analyst Tarika Foster-Brasby. All right, so Tarika, both teams have been called super teams. Explain what that means. Why are these two teams super teams? 
Yeah, well, both teams have been given this name simply because of the roster that they have constructed. Now, one team, the New York Liberty, um, acquired these players via trades in this offseason. So they have multiple players that have multiple MVPs, players that have been nominated or named as, you know, all-stars, and also about four players that have won WNBA championships. Um, same thing with the Las Vegas Aces, except their team was a little bit more put together through, uh, through the draft, where they also have a team that's filled with multiple all-stars. They acquired uh, WNBA legend Candace Parker in this offseason, um, Alicia Clark as well. And so these two teams have been the powerhouse of the WNBA this entire season. Yeah, the two top records in the WNBA too. All right, so let's let's focus in on the matchup of the two stars of each team. The Aces, uh, Asia Wilson versus the Liberty's uh, Brianna Stewart, uh, both in the prime of their careers. They're both really, really good. What do you expect to see against them in the finals? And, and will they guard each other is, is what I want to know. Uh, pure dominance is what you're probably going to see from both of them. I mean, Brianna Stewart, um, she was named the most valuable player of the 2023 WNBA season. And so she has set the record books on fire this year for multiple 40-point games, which is something that we had never seen before. For a little while, she held the scoring record this year. Um, we expect to see her just continue to lead her team in domination. The good thing about the New York Liberty is that because they have so many stars on their team, Brianna doesn't have to do it all. There are multiple players who have the ability to support her when she um, has had a, some offensive struggles this this postseason. Um, oppositely, Asia Wilson just continues to play like a woman possessed. She's had multiple 30-plus <laughs> games in the postseason alone, which is something that no one else had ever done before in the history of the WNBA, which is in its 27th postseason. Um, and she's been leading her team um, throughout some of, gosh, some some of the more difficult matchups. Um, I don't think that they will guard each other oh. that much. John Paul oh. Jones usually guards um, Asia Wilson. However, the way that their their size matches up on yeah. the inside inside, you can you can probably see that there will be times where Brianna and Asia will go toe to toe. Yeah, just a couple of times, clear out one side of the floor and let them go at it. it. Why not? That'd be awesome. You know, <laughs> the NBA in the early '80s was not the league that it is today. But then along came Magic Johnson and the Lakers and Larry Bird and the Celtics, and their championship rivalries just took the league to another level. It was fascinating. It's still talked about today. Can this be that? Can can this be the thing that takes the WNBA to that next level? These two super teams and these two stars going at it for five games? Yeah, I, I actually think that that's a very great comparison. And here's why the WNBA no longer has um, conference alignment when it comes to the playoffs. So it's not like an East versus West, like in the NBA. It's the top eight teams, regardless of conference, who make the postseason. It just so happens this year that the two teams who are going to be vying for a championship is the top team in the East and the top team in the West. So you're kind of starting to see um, at least that East Coast, West Coast rivalry with these two teams, um, but certainly because of the ability of Asia Wilson and Brianna Stewart to really impact the way this league is marketed, the way this league is seen, you can absolutely think that these this rivalry could be something brewing for years to come. Basketball analyst Tarika Foster-Brasby, thanks a lot. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, how this week's chaos on Capitol Hill and the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are being taught in high school civics classes. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available, service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets, on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at BostonBallet.org. For the first time ever, scientists have fully decoded the Y chromosome. Long thought to be the stubby counterpart to the X chromosome, turns out there's far more to the Y than meets the eye. You have a massive amount of genetic creation. Like the structure can be like completely different between different males. Unraveling the secrets of the Y chromosome and maybe of men too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today is World Smile Day, and did you know the iconic yellow smiley face was created in Worcester? Artist Harvey Ball created the smiley face for an insurance company in 1963. Then, in 1999, he founded the first World Smile Day to encourage people to perform kind acts and to smile. Today, the Worcester Historical Museum will host an effort from a nonprofit to set the record for the largest online album of smiles. Some dense fog and clouds should slowly clear this morning and by afternoon it'll be mostly sunny with a high near 71. Tonight cloudy and a low around 62. A chance of showers overnight then overcast and a high near 66 on Saturday. There's a good chance of showers during the day and into the evening. Sunday mostly sunny with a high near 63. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Here's something you don't see or hear every day. Tomorrow afternoon, 25 local jazz ensembles of all kinds will be set up along a mile-and-a-half-long walking loop around the Charles River. Beginning at 2, they'll run through the same set list of 16 songs simultaneously. WBUR's Andrea Shea met the event's curators on the Esplanade to learn more about this celebrity series experiment called Jazz Along the Charles. Jazz is known for being experimental, expansive, and freewheeling. But even musician and co-curator Ken Field admits the Jazz Along the Charles concept is kind of crazy. You have 25 bands all starting at the same starting point, you know, go, right? And they start playing the set list. 
While selecting the setlist 16 tunes, Field and his co-curator Zaili Gonzalez-Zamora abided by two rules. The songs had to have a relationship to Boston and be written or popularized by women. Why not? It's about time. The curators crafted a mix of jazz, pop, and even classical works. There's Boston Beans by Peggy Lee, along with tunes by Berklee College of Music alum Esperanza Spaulding, Amy Mann, who also went to Berkeley, and Victorian-era composer Amy Beach. You know, you might not think of Amy Mann or Amy Beach as music that would be performed by jazz musicians, but there's an incredible history of jazz musicians taking music from all kinds of styles and improvising around it and making it into jazz. To give you a taste of what will unfold along the Charles, let's use Tracy Chapman's 1988 hit, Fast Car. She studied at Tufts University and started her career in Boston. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. Zamora imagines what audiences will experience when 25 ensembles put their own spins on the song. You're going to be walking around listening to Fast Car. You hear this band playing, maybe, I'm going to be biased here, in an Afro-Cuban style. Ooh. <laughs> you know, and then you'll keep walking and you'll still hear the same song now being interpreted by another band, maybe in a free jazz. Here's the Lexington High School Jazz Combo rehearsing Fast Car, which they agreed to record. Then there's the Jamaica Plain Latvian-inspired group Baltic Transit. You got a fast car, why well, wanna take it to anywhere? Maybe we make a deal, maybe together we can get somewhere, where any place is better. While figuring out how to cover Fast Car with her quintet, saxophonist and Berkeley professor Patricia Zarate Perez says she had to rein in her jazz musician instincts. We want to complicate things as much as possible because we want to go deep into the meanings. And I thought maybe we should have like a really big arrangement and, you know, with new harmony and new rhythms. Instead, she decided to stay true to the 35-year-old song's story about the cycle of poverty because it's still as relevant as ever. The saxophonist is also doing something she's not completely comfortable with. I'm going to put my saxophone away, I'm going to play the guitar, and I'm going to play the song as a duo, just like a folk singer would do. And Zarate Perez's daughter, Carolina, is singing with her. The 25 ensembles will also take on Zarate Perez's original composition, Continental Cliff. I learned this rhythm from India that goes like, Zarate 
Zarate Perez is thrilled about all of the other jazz compositions by Boston women on the playlist. There's simply not a lot of spaces for women in jazz in general. The Chilean musician founded Berkeley's Global Jazz Institute and appreciates jazz along the Charles for being inclusive. Co-curator Zaili Zamora says that's the goal. Every single one of those bands is saying something in their music that speaks about their heritage. One of Zamora's compositions is also on deck. She loved playing with her Afro-Cuban jazz trio at the last Jazz Along the Charles in 2018. Ken Field expects the same audience enthusiasm this year. We had thousands of people coming out here jazz. You know, I'm involved with Jazz Boston, a jazz advocacy organization, and they'll take away an appreciation for the amazing musicians we have here, the amazing history we have here, the incredible breadth of what jazz is and what it can be, people are gonna walk away smiling. And maybe even dancing. The last jazz along the Charles tune is a hit by Dorchester native Donna Summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Jazz Along the Charles is being staged tomorrow between 2 and 4 p.m. along the Esplanade in Boston. Today's top stories are next, and then coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition, climate change is urgent and existential, but it's not hopeless. Every day this week on 90.9 WBUR, what you can do to address one of the most pressing issues of our time. In 20 minutes, how a new dam that's being built in the Philippines is highlighting problems with development in that country. Listen to Climate Solutions Week on 90.9 and on the WBUR app. It's 7.29. WBUR supporters include Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds, salemstate.edu slash graduate. And Stepping Stone, for more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from the historically marginalized communities starting in fifth grade all the way through college education. Learn how you can get involved at steppingstone.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Many economists believe hiring in the U.S. slowed in September. NPR's Scott Horsley says the latest employment numbers are due out this morning from the Labor Department. Today's report is expected to show a modest slowdown in hiring last month. Economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo thinks employers added about 150,000 jobs in September. That would be fewer than the month before, but still a healthy number. We have seen the labor market gradually soften. I think gradually is the key word. The slowdown has been very orderly, and that's really what the Fed wants to see. 
The Federal Reserve has been worried that a too tight job market could put upward pressure on inflation and require even higher interest rates to bring prices under control. A gradual slowdown in hiring would give the central bank more leeway to leave interest rates where they are. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A report from payroll processor ADP this week showed private employers added just 89,000 jobs last month. Former President Donald Trump says on social media he's endorsing Ohio Republican Jim Jordan to be the next House Speaker. A vote in the House is expected next week on a replacement for the ousted Kevin McCarthy. Jordan chairs the House Judiciary Committee. This year's Nobel Peace Prize is being awarded to imprisoned Iranian women's rights activist Nargis Mohammadi. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Middlesex District Attorney says the shooting of a college student by a Cambridge police officer was justified. Saeed Arif Faisal was killed in January after police say he came toward them with a knife. In the investigation, the DA says Faisal didn't respond to officers' requests to drop the knife. The report closes any criminal investigation into the shooting. Congressman Jake Auchincloss is calling on the Biden administration to assess the state's shelter system. Thousands of migrants who come to the state, along with a growing population of unhoused people, are straining the system. Auchincloss tells the Boston Globe he wants a team of Homeland Security officials to come to the state. A similar assessment recently took place in New York City after a visit. Homeland Security gave New York officials recommendations on how to improve their housing situation. Forecasters say New England's iconic fall foliage will likely be more muted and also more pastel in color this year. As WBUR's Stevie Chapman explains, that's because of our unusually wet summer. While summer rain kept New England out of drought danger, it isn't doing any favors for the 2023 leaf peeping season. Jim Salji is the foliage expert for Yankee Magazine. He says the wet weather is causing a fungus that's turning the leaves brown, and rain also dilutes the sugars in the leaves. And we need those sugars to really pop our vibrant red colors. But Salji says this year's fall colors are still worth the trip. You might just have to look a bit harder to find them. There are some very bright areas coming in already. We're seeing that. So there is bright color around. You're just going to have to travel around to see it this year. Salji expects peak colors to hit northern New England this weekend. They'll steadily move south, reaching the Boston area from late October into early November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Bruins beat the Rangers 3-1 to last night in New York. Boston finished the exhibition season with a 2-2-2 two and two and two record. They'll drop the puck on the regular season Wednesday night at the Garden. That's when they'll host the Chicago Blackhawks. Dense fog should dissipate by late morning and cloudy skies will gradually clear. We should have a mostly sunny afternoon with highs around 70. Tonight, the clouds return and it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow, cloudy with highs in the mid-60s and a good chance of showers during the day and into the evening. Sunday, mostly sunny and a high in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. 
From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Fulton in Washington, D.C. North Carolina's legislature is now exempt from the public records law that governs other branches of government. As WUNC's Colin Campbell reports, the change came alongside a major expansion of the legislature's ability to seize documents from state agencies and private contracts. North Carolina law allows the public to obtain a variety of documents from state government and its elected officials, their emails and their meeting calendars. That transparency law still applies to the governor, local mayors, and agency leaders across the state. But a provision in the newly enacted budget bill now cuts off that access for anyone seeking records from state legislators and their staff. It says the lawmakers themselves can decide what to make public and which documents to delete or toss in the shredder. Brooks Fuller leads the NC Open Government Coalition, which opposes the change. They have every incentive to leave you in the dark if there's a record of something unflattering or that might not be politically advantageous to them. And my belief is that that's probably what most legislators are going to do. Legislative leaders wouldn't say who asked for the provision to be added to the final draft of the budget, but House Speaker Tim Moore defended the change. I think we received a public records request to every member of the General Assembly for every bit of correspondence for the last three years. Now imagine how much that would cost to produce that. They're designed to, to add to cost and harass, and it ends up costing the taxpayers money. So how do you balance that with ensuring that the public has full transparency? The move has few defenders outside the legislative building. The conservative John Locke Foundation, the State Press Association, and many Democrats have called for the language to be repealed. The change also removes transparency from the redistricting process underway this month. In the past, documents used in drawing new congressional and legislative maps were released after the new districts were approved. That won't happen this year, prompting criticism from Democratic State Representative Tim Longest. It shields precisely those records on matters where folks from both sides of the aisle have said we should be more transparent, drawing district lines. As the legislature shuts off access to its internal workings, it's giving its own staff far more power to get documents and information from other branches of government, as well as private companies that do business with the state. A few years ago, legislative leaders eliminated a nonpartisan agency that reviewed state programs and recommended improvements. That agency was replaced by investigators working directly for the leaders of a legislative panel known as the Commission on Government Operations. It's recently probed hurricane recovery programs and high school sports oversight, holding sometimes testy hearings with officials from Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's administration. A budget provision will let partisan staffers for the commission seize documents and enter offices of state agencies and government contractors. Democratic State Senator Greg Myers says the access is so broad that the partisan investigators could enter private homes of political opponents without a warrant if they use their home as the headquarters for a business. He compares it to a spy agency. The advent of this type of secret policing feels more like opening the door of authoritarianism. It should scare us all. Republicans dismissed Meyer's scenarios as hyperbole. They say the new authority for the agency is similar to what the state auditor uses to investigate government spending. But Fuller of the Open Government Coalition says it's a concerning shift when paired with the repeal of public records laws. This means that folks who already enjoy a lot of privilege and a lot of power as elected representatives in state government now have the ability to make public information laws such as they exist work for them. And meanwhile, they've stripped that power away from average folks. 
Reporters and others filed a few more requests to get lawmakers' emails before the change took effect. It could be folks' last chance for now. For NPR News, I'm Colin Campbell in Raleigh. This week's turmoil on Capitol Hill was one for the history books, and that's made for some very timely discussions in high school civics classes. NPR's Laurel Wamsley and Meg Anderson spent time in classrooms in Washington, D.C. and Minneapolis to hear what teachers and students had to say. Now, quick note, we're not using students' last names because they're minors. Less than two miles northeast of the U.S. Capitol building, seniors in the AP government class at KIPP D.C. College Prep take their seats. Today's lesson? what just happened in the House of Representatives. Here's teacher Christopher Gledich. Well, it happened last night. He hits play on a video. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. This has never happened before in American history. Gledich hands out a news article about Speaker Kevin McCarthy's ouster for students to read and discuss. The timing was good. The class had just covered the legislative branch and its leaders. The upheaval on Capitol Hill is a chance for the class to look at how well, or not, that structure is working right now. Gledich asks why a small group of fellow Republicans went after McCarthy. Sean starts off. They decided to remove him because he was siding with the Democrats at certain times. He sided with the Democrats. But like, aren't you supposed to work together? Yeah. Scott? I feel like that's how it's supposed to be, but how our Congress is set up now, it's like Republicans and Democrats will always have that separation going on because there's certain situations that they cannot agree on that they don't agree on. Polarization was also top of mind in Joe Keneally's class at Hiawatha Collegiate High School in Minneapolis. All right, seniors, I will turn off my voice and hand it over to you guys. A senior named Luke said it can be good to disagree. But I think that if those disagreements become demonizing each other just because you have those different values, you're never actually going to get common ground. But his classmate Sarah said sometimes the stakes are too high to not fight for your beliefs. If we talk about the Supreme Court decision about like overturning Roe v. Wade, it feels like sometimes there needs to be polarization because sometimes like the things that are happening in the government is like a direct attack on someone's identity. These conversations about government aren't really a priority in a lot of schools. That's according to Kay Kawashima Ginsburg, who researches civics education at Tufts University. One of the things about civic education that's challenging is that we neglected it for the past three decades or so, for sure. She says that's a problem because not only does civics education teach how the government is supposed to work, it also teaches students how to disagree with one another in a productive way. Luke's got an idea. In the Minneapolis class, Zachariah told me that being productive is exactly what's not happening in Congress. But he's not sure they care what he thinks. When you think about like the government, mm -hmm. do you feel like that stuff is like far away from your life? Or do you feel Yeah, like I think it's like super far. It's, it's like we're not even like the same place. Like what I say, like right now, if I had an opinion, like it wouldn't really matter to them. They're all like closed door meetings, like all the rules that they make. His teacher, Joe Keneally, was across the room listening. I'd like to think that Zach is, that's not where he's going to end his journey, but I do think civics and, and government class, if it's done right, does help students to understand more of those systems that are in place that they're already in, they're experiencing it, it just gives them vocab. Vocabulary to make sense of what's happening on Capitol Hill and to recognize whether Congress is functioning like it should.
Meg Anderson, NPR News, Minneapolis. And I'm Laurel Wamsley in Washington. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Friday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, Boston College history professor Heather Cox Richardson will discuss the state of our democracy following the unprecedented removal of the House Speaker this week. A reminder for tea riders, because of the holiday on Monday, the tea will run buses and subways on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail and ferries will run on a weekday schedule. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 11, and overcast skies will gradually clear this morning. We'll have temperatures around 70. Tonight, those fall to the low 60s, and it'll be cloudy with a chance for showers. Tomorrow, cloudy, mid-60s, and a good chance of showers. It dries up for a mostly sunny day on Sunday in the low 60s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community's Open Studios event happening October 13th through 15th, featuring artist exhibits, experiencing architecture through VR, and using Legos for model making. For more info, visit fortpointarts.org. A European biotech firm is closing a research lab in Lexington and laying off all 35 of its workers there. As part of a larger restructuring, Unicure is laying off more than 100 people worldwide. That's one quarter of its workforce. The company says the cuts are needed because it's shutting down a majority of its research projects. A new biomedical startup out of Dana-Farber is getting some big support. The blood plasma testing company Proceed Biosciences yesterday announced $57 million in funding. Some of that came from industry giants like Bristol Myers and Lilly. The popular restaurant Eastern Standard plans to reopen later this month. It closed its Kenmore, Kenmore Square location in 2021 over a lease dispute. Boston Restaurant Talk reports the new location nearby on Beacon Street will open next weekend. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And Amy Martinez. Sending money from one bank to another down the street can take longer than sending a package all the way across the country. So the Federal Reserve is trying to change that with FedNow, a new, faster way to send money. But as Emma Peasley from NPR's Planet Money podcast reports, banks are taking their time adopting it. The way money moves in the U.S. is very slow. Aaron Klein used to work at the Treasury Department and now at the Brookings Institution. And he is a bit obsessed with banking transfers. The Federal Reserve has used a decades-old system called an automated clearinghouse, or ACH, which operates like a laundry machine on a batch. You put all the payments in at once, you press the button, you wait a while, and all the payments get sorted and come out together which can cause problems. Like, say your company pays you at the end of the month, 
but the money doesn't hit your account till a day or two later. Now, what do you do? The first of the month, you have rent, you have bills to pay, you have automatic deposits. Boom, overdraft, boom, overdraft. Klein estimates that 30 to 60 percent of overdraft fees could be eliminated with a real-time payment system, like FedNow. We've been waiting for a real-time payment solution for a long time. Gary Rodriguez is the president and CEO of Star One Credit Union in Sunnyvale, California. His credit union is one of the early adopters of FedNow. You know, most of the transactions occur in less than five seconds, with a maximum of 20 seconds being the longest. And some apps out there might seem that fast, but they can have fees. Or if you want the money in your actual bank account, it can still take days through that old batch system. So Star One Credit Union is using FedNow for a new, truly instant pay option for its members. But there's a catch. There are only about 100 banks signed up for FedNow so far, out of about 9,000 financial institutions in the country. I'm taken back a little bit by thinking that I don't know why others aren't jumping in. So why would banks not want to let their customers send and receive money instantly? I mean, you hear the phrase, faster payments, faster fraud. Mary Williams is COO at the United Bankers Bank in Bloomington, Minnesota. She works with a lot of community banks, and some of them say they don't see a need yet, that customers aren't asking for it. I think everybody's a little bit hesitant to be able to send too quickly when it hasn't really been up and running for a period of time. The Federal Reserve says the potential for fraud exists with any payment process. And they say it took the old system years to be fully adopted. So it can be slow going to get our money moving faster. Emma Peasley, NPR News. All right, you can hear more stories about the systems that make our economy flow on NPR's Planet Money. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey I saw there's a heat advisory over there in mm. LA. Because you were wondering, it's in the 70s, little cloudy, lovely over here. Not to rub it in. <laughs> it's going to be 98 degrees in L.A. today, which is also the name of my favorite boy band. <laughs> that just reminds me of that. Um, but you know what that means? You know what that means, Layla? Yeah. That means that I can unpack, because I packed it away for the fall, I can unpack my teal Ari Shapiro is my co-pilot tank <laughs> for the weekend. Is that what you're going to use for your run? You're not running I, in this weather, right? No, I run at 4 in the morning, but that means it's going to be 70 at 4 in the morning, which is going to mm. be sweet, too, because everyone's going to see me in that tank top. <laughs> it's a good one. Haven't you seen it? I've seen it. I have seen it. I paid for that tank top, too. I didn't get it for free. Like, other hosts get free stuff. <laughs> This is NPR News. It's Friday, and that means it's StoryCorps. Coming up at 8.20 on WBMware's Morning Edition, two former college roommates, including one who is transgender, talk about what they've learned from each other. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. 
We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The Biden administration says it plans to start deporting thousands of Venezuelans in an effort to cut down on the number of migrants in the U.S., Jailed Iranian women's and human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi is this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And in Massachusetts, an investigation by the Middlesex District Attorney finds the shooting of a college student by a Cambridge police officer was justified. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. It gradually clears up this morning for a mostly sunny afternoon with temperatures around 70. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. Joe Biden's dog, Commander, has left the White House. The two-year-old German shepherd bit a Secret Service agent on Monday. It was the latest of several biting incidents for the first pooch. Obviously, the dog isn't comfortable in that environment. That's Nick White. He's a former Secret Service agent and owner of Off-Leash Canine Training. White says the, that White House dogs can deal with hundreds of people a day. Secret Service to White House staff to Navy staff to the contractors who are coming in and out. It's a tough place for people, let alone dogs. Author and veteran dog trainer Robin Bennett says it's important to identify the specifics of what triggers a bite. Is it fast-moving objects? Is the dog protecting his bed? Is he scared of people that have sunglasses on? Now, if sunglasses are a big fear, it helps if the dog's given a high-value treat by the person wearing sunglasses. So after a while, the dog says, people with glasses are great because I get chicken when I see them. White says the number one reason for aggression in dogs is a lack of socialization at a young age. We're seeing that a lot with what we call the COVID dogs. (laughs) So those dogs and those people weren't going out to stores with their dogs. They weren't going out to parks. With dogs, you should never assume the problem is going to fix itself. In general, in dogs, I would say even like people, behavioral issues are going to get worse over time. They're not going to improve over time. So if your dog is biting, White says it's cheaper to get a dog trainer now than to pay for the damage later. In the Philippines, an impending water shortage exasperated by climate change threatens the livelihoods of millions of residents in the capital, Manila. In anticipation, a large dam is being built in the nearby Sierra Madre Mountains, but the dam is not without its controversies. Ashley Westerman brings us this report as part of NPR's week dedicated to stories about the search for climate solutions. Daraitan is a small touristy village a couple of hours outside of Manila, nestled in the mountains of Rizal province on the Agos River. The village of about 5,000 residents is lush and green. This place is known as the home for the indigenous Dumagat people, most of them farmers whose families have lived off the land and the river for centuries families like Maria Clara Dulaces. 
She says the community is peaceful and we have everything we need here. Dulas is the president of Dumagat Women of Sierra Madre. They have been fighting the building of the Kaliwa Dam for years, a project Philippine officials are hoping will alleviate the capital's impending water crisis. The 230-foot dam's construction began last year, and though it will be built more than six miles upriver, Dula says once completed, the new water flow will submerge her village. Let's go. It will also destroy their sacred lands, such as the white marble rock formations upriver. They perform rituals here, she says, rituals that protect the community from sickness and bad luck. But if the dam is built, all of this will be blasted away to increase the river's water flow. It hurts us. It's devastating, she says. But if the dam isn't built, officials say the water crisis will leave more than 13 million people without an adequate water supply starting next year. At Manila's Metropolitan Waterworks and Sewage System offices, supervising engineer Delphin Suspine says the region's exploding population is partially to blame. But there's another reason, the anticipation of the next El Nino, a naturally occurring weather pattern that has to do with the ocean getting warmer along the equatorial Pacific. How does El Nino affect the water supply? Uh, well, it will affect because there will be less rain for those dams that impound water for Metro Manila. Yet while El Nino is expected, man-made climate change will exacerbate the effects of it. The United Nations says the Philippines is one of the most vulnerable countries when it comes to climate change. Along with droughts, over the years, the archipelago nation has also seen sea level rise, ocean acidification, and more extreme weather events such as devastating typhoons. But building the Kaliwa Dam is not a silver bullet solution to adapt to changing weather, says Angelo Carlos Torres de la Cruz with the Manila-based Institute for Climate and Sustainable Cities. It could have a role to play because it has scale, it's bankable, it can be invested on really quick. But that shouldn't happen at the expense of other equally important issues. For example, indigenous people's rights, forest and land degradation, and so on. While dams are often billed as a drought protection measure and a renewable energy source, they have also been known to contribute to climate change and its effects. Dams can emit a lot of CO2 and methane because when dams form lakes, a lot of vegetation is smothered by the excess water and dies, releasing greenhouse gases. Dams can also intensify flash flooding by releasing too much water during big storms and even drought by diverting water from rivers. Brian Eiler, the director of the Stemson Center's Southeast Asia program, says dams are just band-aids. Because the weather is going to become so much more extreme to the point that it's hard to predict and design a dam for that future extremity. But at the moment, no one is talking about these problems. Filipinos seem more distracted by how much the Kaliwa Dam will cost and that it's being financed by China. Experts there say this highlights the continual disjointed conversation about development in the Philippines. Because while climate change is not up for debate here, how to adapt to it and integrate it into the plans of the developing nation is. 
Back in Daraitan, Maria Clara Dulas doesn't feel like her community is being included in decisions about development or climate change adaptation at all. And while they aren't against progress, she says, they don't want their homes destroyed. The national government has offered the entire village the rough equivalent of a little over $1.4 million to relocate, Dulas says. We keep saying we don't want to benefit from the dam, she says. We just want what is ours, which is the land. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Manila. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at BostonBallet.org. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at Solar Gardens. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In an abrupt reversal, the Biden administration says it'll expand a wall along the Mexican border and begin deporting thousands of Venezuelans. It's Friday, October 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Boston College history professor Heather Cox Richardson puts the unprecedented ouster of a U.S. House speaker in perspective. A small political minority has managed to take control of the crucial nodes of the mechanics of our democracy and are trying to impose their will on the rest of us. Also this hour, this year's Nobel Peace Prize goes to an Iranian women's and human rights activist who's in prison. And what all the summer rain means for New England's fall colors. The saps and the sugars are not all that concentrated in the leaves and we need those sugars to really pop our vibrant red colors. Skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day in the 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. It's still unclear who will be the next Speaker of the House. Former President Donald Trump initially floated the idea of temporarily filling the post himself. Now he says he's backing Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the other contender for the speakership is Louisiana's Steve Scalise. Congressman Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise are rushing to lock down the more centrist members of the conference ahead of a vote that's expected to take place next Wednesday. Jordan, the chairman of the powerful House Judiciary Committee and a fierce defender of Donald Trump, has pitched himself to his fellow Republicans as someone who can unify the party going forward. Majority Leader Scalise has argued that he has the experience needed to unite the conference, having served as part of the House Republican leadership team for the past 10 years. In order to become the next speaker, any candidate will need a simple majority of the House members who are present and voting. Historically, that number has been too 218. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The co-founder of the failed cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, has testified against accused crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried. As NPR's David Gura reports, Gary Wong testified he committed fraud at Bankman-Fried's direction. The U.S. government alleges Sam Bankman-Fried defrauded FTX customers and investors and lenders to the now-defunct cryptocurrency-focused hedge fund he co-founded called Alameda Research. On Thursday, jurors heard testimony from a partner at the venture capital firm Paradigm, which invested hundreds of millions of dollars in FTX. Last November, when the cryptocurrency exchange collapsed, Paradigm marked down that investment to zero. Prosecutors began questioning Gary Wong, who started FTX with Bankman-Fried and pleaded guilty to wire fraud, securities fraud, and commodities fraud charges. He's a cooperating witness who said in court he committed those crimes with Bankman-Fried and others. Wong's testimony continues today. David Gura, NPR News, New York. About 75,000 unionized health care workers for Kaiser Permanente remain on strike across the country. They're demanding better wages, and they're calling on Kaiser to immediately address a significant staffing shortage in its facilities. Caroline Lucas directs the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions. She says Kaiser patients also want new health care workers to be hired. We are having overwhelming support from existing Kaiser patients who have called, emailed, showed up to our strike lines to tell us that they are overwhelmed and tired by the Kaiser weight to get appointments today. The strike against Kaiser will end tomorrow morning. This year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize is Iranian women's rights activist Nargis Mohammadi. She's been honored for years of activism to ensure human rights for women in Iran's theocratic government. Mohammadi is imprisoned. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. On Beacon Hill, House lawmakers expect to vote later this month on major updates to the state's gun laws. The proposed legislation unveiled yesterday limits spaces where guns can be carried and regulates illegal so-called ghost guns. House Judiciary Committee co-chair Michael Day helped draft the plan. He says the committee learned about gaps in an existing law during hearings on the legislation. We heard that our assault weapons ban that's been in place for nearly 30 years did not include the changes in technology in the assault weapons marketplace. We heard that our laws were confusing and contradictory in some places, making compliance challenging for our responsible gun owners. Senate leaders are hopeful they can get updated gun legislation to the governor by the end of their session. A hearing on the removal of the head of the Cannabis Control Commission has been pushed to next month. That hearing was originally scheduled for today. It's meant to address the claim that Treasurer Deborah Goldberg removed Shannon O'Brien as head of the CCC illegally. Goldberg suspended the former head of the commission last month without saying why. Fishermen on Cape Cod are pushing a climate-friendly catch. They hope it can make its way into restaurants and markets. WB Wars' Josie Gorgino has more on scup, an underutilized species that's trying to make a name for itself. Scup is a small fish but packed with nutrition. That's according to Aubrey Church of the Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance. She says scup makes for some good fish tacos, too. It's a flaky white meat, you know, not super pungent for someone who might be intimidated by fish. So it's just kind of an overall great choice. That's what Church and local fishermen are telling Cape businesses. They're hoping scup will make it into the big leagues like monk and winter skate, two other underutilized fish that have grown in popularity. 
it's not just educating the restaurants and consumers, but also educating the chefs. They may not be familiar with this type of product. Church is hopeful businesses on the Cape will take the bait and add scup to the ever-growing sustainable fish market. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Local theaters will pay tribute tonight to a longtime figure in the Boston theater world. They plan to honor Spiro Valudos by dimming their marquee lights. Valudos spent more than two decades at the Lyric Stage in Boston. He was the company's artistic director. Valudos was 71 years old. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wheeler School for students in nursery through grade 12. Discover where your curiosity can take you at Wheeler, October 21st open house, wheelerschool.org. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, tonight and Sunday, handelandhaydn.org. The Bruins topped the Rangers 3-1 last night in New York in their final exhibition game of the fall. The Bees' regular season begins Wednesday night at home against the Chicago Blackhawks. There's a dense fog advisory in effect until 11. Clouds will eventually give way to sun today. It'll be around 70. Cloudy with a chance for showers tonight in the low 60s. Cloudy with showers tomorrow and a high in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny on Sunday and highs in the low 60s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Russian missile strikes in Ukraine have killed at least 51 people and injured dozens of others. But beyond the devastating human toll of this war that we're reminded of every day, the conflict is also affecting the country's crop fields. Yeah, the fighting has left a gash across the country's farmland that's so large it's actually visible from space. That's according to a new analysis from NASA-funded researchers. The ongoing conflict with Russia has devastated some of the most productive farmland in Europe. NPR's Jeff Brumfield got an exclusive look and joins me now to discuss. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. So these researchers have been able to determine how much farmland has been lost to the war, right? Tell us what they found. That's right. This program is called NASA Harvest, and it specializes in using satellite imagery to monitor agriculture all over the world. Mm -hmm. Using commercial imagery from a company called Planet, they were able to measure exactly how many fields in Ukraine were not planted this year because of the war. Here's Harvest Program Director Imbal Becker-Reshev. Between six and a half and eight and a half percent of Ukraine's total cropland that has been abandoned, which is a, a massive amount of land. This is millions and millions of acres of some of the most fertile land in Ukraine. But why? I mean, that seems like so much. And I know the front line is full of trenches, anti-tank obstacles, minefields. But is that taking all of this space? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. Some of the you know, trenches and things run through the fields, and obviously the farmers can't get to those. Mm -hmm. But the researchers and other experts I spoke to think there's something else going on. Both sides are using a lot of artillery. I spoke to Patrick Hinton. He's an artillery officer in the British Army. And he says there hasn't been a sort of artillery battle like this since the last century. The mass of metal flying each way 
is phenomenal. Thousands of rounds a day, hundreds of thousands a month. And those shells are landing in farmers' fields many miles from the front line. So many of those fields have been left to grow over with grass and weeds. It's basically created this huge scar cutting across the country. And sort of ironically, because the land is so fertile, that means the scar is green rather than brown in the satellite imagery. It just shows, though, how much food could have been grown there if farmers could get to that land. How much food could have been grown in Ukraine's known as Europe's breadbasket? I mean, what's the impact here? According to the researchers I've spoken to, Ukraine has managed to maintain its agricultural production pretty much even this year. And that's for Mm. a couple of reasons. First, Ukrainian farmers are incredibly tough. And then also they've had a pretty good year in terms of weather. Um, They've had some good rainfall But of course, had this land been available, they could have grown even more. Becca Reshef believes around $2 billion was lost this year alone. And those losses are going to be much higher over time because even if Ukraine can push Russia back, she thinks farmers can't safely grow on this land anytime soon. That abandoned land is very likely to be abandoned into the long term due to shelling, due to mining, due to contamination. And she's worried that as more shells fall, this is going to be a larger hit to production, and that could rattle through global food systems. Ukraine does export a lot of food, including about 9% of the world's wheat. NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. The Republican revolt that led to Kevin McCarthy's ouster as House Speaker this week has no precedent. And what happens next is unclear. So what does history suggest about the current state of the U.S. democracy? Historian Heather Cox Richardson wrestles with that question in her newsletter, The Popular Letters from an American. Her new book is called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And we spoke yesterday. I asked her how to put this week's events into context. So, Heather, Kevin McCarthy really, in his nine months as Speaker, lurched from crisis to crisis. And, you know, the government is appearing to be heading toward another shutdown, possibly in November. As a historian, how do you view this moment in our democracy's history right now? Well, I have to start by saying this is truly an eye-popping moment. We have never before had a speaker vacated from his position, and that entails all kinds of things for our government that are unprecedented. But the place to start with this is that this is not a Congress problem. This is a Republican Party problem, and it's a Republican Party problem that has been coming for a while. If you think about what's happened with McCarthy in his very, very short tenure as speaker, he has indeed lurched from crisis to crisis. But what he has really done is increasingly empowered a small group of extremists to shut down the House of Representatives, therefore the Congress, and therefore the U.S. government. And what looks to many people, I think, like, ah, the speaker, whatever, is actually a much larger conversation about the U.S. government and not only how it's going to function, but whether it's going to function. Do you have concerns about the health of our democracy? Well, I always have concerns about the health of our democracy, but yes, I mean, we are in a period in which a small minority, political minority, has managed to take control of the crucial nodes of the mechanics of our democracy and are trying to impose their will on the rest of us. And there have been workarounds for a long time because of the guardrails we've had in our system. But those guardrails have been eroded really beginning in the 1980s to the point where we now have a situation that is frankly really astonishing that we've got at this point eight people eight people who have managed to, to, to stop our government. 
And that strikes me as being something that we as a people must figure out how to correct going forward. Now, in the long term, do I have concerns about our democracy? Sure, because democracy is always a work in progress. It has never been perfect. But I'm also extraordinarily excited about the fact that so many people are now paying attention and care again. And I do have faith that we can fix it. Do you think, Heather, that people should care more? I do think everybody should care. And the reason that we haven't in the past as much as perhaps we should have is because I believe people thought that the guardrails of our democracy were safe. Now we are in a period when those things are on the chopping block. And if people are not paying attention, they really ought to be because Politics and government is really not something that lives off in a far off place that doesn't interest people, especially now that the guardrails are eroding because those decisions that are made at that that the higher levels have direct effects on your everyday life. Like, for example, the right to reproductive health care, which people really did not think we were going to lose. And we did, of course, in June of 2022. So the answer is that it's sometimes you get frustrated listening to people scream at each other, but what they're screaming about is your life and what things you are allowed to do in your life. And, and it's a really important thing to pay attention to. Is our democracy resilient or is it just barely holding on right now? It is resilient. Uh, you know, I am not a doomsayer. Remember, we have been through really terrifically uh, horrible times in the past, and we've come through them. But I do like to remind people that when they say, oh, we couldn't lose democracy in this country, I always say we already have. Look at the period between about 1874 and 1965 in the American South, which was one party rule in which the, the law determined your how you would be treated based on who you knew and the color of your skin. There was extraordinarily rampant corruption. There was uh, you know economic stagnation because capital didn't want to migrate to a place where you had no idea whether or not your business interests would be safe. We have done it before, and God forbid we should do it again. Heather Cox Richardson teaches history at Boston College. Her new book is called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The MacArthur Fellowships were announced this week, and they include legal scholars, scientists, composers, and a hula dancer. Yeah, that genius grant recipient is Kumu Patrick Makuakane, a master hula teacher based in San Francisco. He's working to preserve the traditional Hawaiian dance and move it forward. I think of myself as a cultural organizer, a cultural preservationist, perhaps a cultural provocateur with my work, because not only am I impassioned about preserving our traditions, I'm a firm believer that innovation has to be part of the mix in order to keep our culture vibrant and relevant. Makuakane has been dancing hula for almost 50 years. Hula just opens the door to every facet of culture, religion, philosophy, art that you could possibly want to learn about. I mean, it speaks to everything in our history, in our genealogy. And so it just kind of gave me a way to express my native identity. His dance company has thrived in part thanks to a new style of hula that he developed called Hula Mua. I use 
non-Hawaiian music to create work. So everything from pop music to electronic, um, progressive house, opera, adult contemporary, jazz, anything that has a beat and a meter. <laughs> In his shows, Makua Kana explores the socioeconomic hardship Native Hawaiians have endured over the course of their history. After losing friends to AIDS, he began incorporating gay rights into his performances. His show, called Mahu, celebrated transgender artists. If you're going to call your show Mahu, which is the Hawaiian term for the LGBTQ plus community, I wanted to help process of taking that word back to one of agency and power and affirmation. Makua Kane still isn't sure how he's gonna spend the $800,000 he'll receive over the next five years as part of the Genius Grant. I'm still in shock and disbelief, but there's also a feeling of guilt. I never would have gotten here if it wasn't for this really lovely community that I've been sustaining for many decades. I'm beyond grateful to them. And um, yeah, we did it all together. One thing he will do is keep on dancing. This is NPR News. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, an Iranian women's rights activist and human rights activist imprisoned in Tehran has won the Nobel Peace Prize. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI, with a day-long event leading with AI responsibly. Explore the impact generative AI technologies like ChatGPT have on business with experts from Check, Google, Fidelity, and more, Wednesday, October 18th. More at ai.northeastern.edu. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. The Baltimore Orioles went from having one of the worst records in baseball to winning their division. And some fans, they can't believe it. I keep asking, is this for real? I can't, you know, I have to pinch myself. Is this really happening? We take you out to the ball game to look inside the Orioles' journey from zero to hero. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. This holiday weekend can be a busy one for travel. That's why the state says it'll open the carpool lane on southbound 93 an hour early today. It'll be open at 1. The Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown will also be open for the entire weekend. Some dense fog and clouds should slowly clear this morning, and by afternoon, it'll be mostly sunny with a high near 71. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 62. A chance of showers overnight, then overcast and a high near 66 on Saturday. There's a good chance of showers during the day and into the evening. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 63. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from United Airlines, committed to achieving net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets. Learn more at united.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. 
From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. The London-based White Cube Gallery has opened a space in New York. The subversive inaugural exhibit Chopped and Screwed takes its name from the 1990s Houston hip-hop scene. White Cube's U.S. Senior Director Courtney Willis-Blair listened to this music while preparing the exhibition. And I realized that this framework around experimentation and distortion was incredibly crucial to some of the practices that these artists had. NPR's Olivia Hampton spoke with her and brings us this report. The four-story brick building was once a bank. It's been completely gutted to make room for light and more light. It's key to viewing the works. Willis Blair walked through the space as guests arrived for a sneak preview. It's important that What we do bring to New York is something that is fresh and new and that we're able to carve a space out for ourselves, not only in the work that we show, but also the dialogues and the conversations that we're able to have. The kind of conversation triggered by Theaster Gates's civil color spectrum. Flattened fire hoses form a thick canvas nine feet wide by seven feet tall, shifting from red to orange to yellow. Theaster is really thinking about the 1963 demonstrations, um, protesting some of the Klan bombings and fires, and the police who subsequently did this really violent act by spraying them with fire hoses and injuring children and, and men and women. He's rendered this tool of violence sort of useless, but also points to this really powerful moment in our history. We headed upstairs to find Skunk by Ethiopian-American artist Julie Moretu. Densely layered blue, black, and red streaks swirl across the canvas in a kind of haze. It's really a collage of images. She made this painting for this show, thinking about this understanding of chopped and screwed. White Cube cut its teeth in London 30 years ago by showcasing the often irreverent young British artist movement that it helped shape. Today, the gallery has grown with sister spaces across London and in Paris, Hong Kong, and Seoul. So what might you expect when you push open that glass entrance door on Madison Avenue? World-class art. They can expect to walk into those doors and be transformed. The gallery prides itself on being artist-led. This next stage in New York involves artists like Alana Savdi. She's 37 and grew up in the U.S. and Colombia. Well, it meant the world to me to have a gallery like White Cube with the history that White Cube has to be invested in what I had to say, to offer me a platform to say it in the way that I wanted to say it without limiting my voice. I caught up with Savdi at night at White Cube's launch event in a huge French Renaissance-style mansion nearby. We searched out a quiet corner to speak about her drawings and vibrantly colored paintings whose lines hint at a breast or teeth, peaks, and valleys. To be shown within that context, as a sort of peer of that art history allows you as an artist to contribute your voice to that history of art. On the floors above us, the glitterati of the art, music, and fashion worlds converged in a gilded age decor, dancing the night away. Olivia Hampton, NPR News. Time now for StoryCorps. 
In fall of 2016, Andre Thomas and Trey Phillips both enrolled in Connecticut College. Andre grew up in the Midwest. Trey came from Los Angeles. They met when they became college roommates. I had flown in by myself. I remember opening the door and seeing a whole bunch of faces. It was my mom, my dad, and my grandparents. All four of them <laughs> were in the room all day. That tiny space. And then your family already knew my name, too. Yeah, you had already been adopted <laughs> at that point. Yeah. I didn't really have my family to be as supportive as I needed them to be. It was rough. But, like, when I would come back to the room and you, you would just come back and I would have someone to talk to, I felt better. And then there were, like, random people coming up to me, like, are you Trey? And I'd be like, yeah. Oh, hey, Trey, what's up? I got that a lot, actually. And it was you. I think you told everyone I was a great roommate. That would actually make my day, and they didn't even know it. Most first years to come could feel alone just because they're transitioning into college, period. But you had another layer to yours. When did you find out that I was trans? I don't think you told me. I didn't? No. But I think I asked you what pronouns you wanted to be referred by, which is also the first time that I had ever asked anyone that. Before me, have you ever known anyone who was trans? I don't think so. But... I could, I don't know. What's funny is that all of the questions I asked you, I was so nervous to ask, but you answered all of them. Yeah. And um, I think once I got all the answers, I just went back to bed. I was yep. like, all right, thanks. <laughs> good night. <laughs> See you tomorrow. It felt good because that was the first time anyone had actually wanted to know about how I was feeling so that I could tell that you cared. I appreciated that. Yeah. I mean, you say that you have a lot to thank me for, but that was the main thing I had to thank you for, was showing me someone who's always struggled with the whole macho thing, that you just create whatever you want. Being around my dad and my grandfathers and uncles and going to the barbershop, everyone's talking about sports and cars and women, and I'm like, I just came to get a haircut. I uh, didn't really want to talk about the game last night because I didn't watch it and I won't watch any of the other ones that you're going to talk about. So you just showed me that it was okay for me to like theater and acting and cooking. And that's when I knew, like, I can do whatever I want. And if someone doesn't classify me as masculine or whatever, who cares? At the end of the day, you have to look yourself in the mirror and you have to lay down on your bed by yourself. And you have to be okay with you. That was Trey Phillips and Andre Thomas. They remain close. Andre has a career in theater. Trey recently moved back to L.A. with his fiance. Their StoryCorps conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Why our rainy summer may mean less vibrant colors across New England this fall. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. 
and lessons in chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Imprisoned Iranian women's rights activist Nargis Mohammadi is this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. That award was announced today in Oslo. The Biden administration says it will resume deporting Venezuelan migrants to their home country, with the number arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border continuing to grow. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced the move yesterday while in Mexico City, days after the Biden administration indicated current conditions prevented the U.S. from doing so safely. Mayorkas was part of a U.S. delegation that traveled to Mexico, led by Secretary of State Antony Blinken. President Biden's decision to resume construction of a wall along the border was a sore point at the gathering in Mexico, as James Frederick reports. Mexican Foreign Minister Alicia Barcena repeated a phrase, We believe in bridges, not walls. Additional border wall construction was the clear point of contention in a day where officials otherwise said they were making progress. The two countries agreed to invest in screening at the border to fight fentanyl trafficking and combat the flow of U.S. firearms south into the hands of Mexican cartels. Regarding border enforcement, Barcena insisted the focus must be on the root causes of migration and alternatives for people leaving their homes. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in Mexico City. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. An investigation finds that the shooting of a college student by Cambridge police officers was justified. The Middlesex District Attorney says the shooting of Saeed Arif Faisal was not criminal. Police shot him in January after they say he came toward them with a knife. In the investigation, the DA says Faisal did not respond to officers' requests to drop the knife. The report closes any criminal investigation into the shooting. Massachusetts is getting more than $1 billion in federal funding for road and bridge repairs. The money comes from the massive infrastructure spending package approved in 2021. This is the third year of funding. This round of money includes more than $13 million for electric vehicle infrastructure. Tufts University inaugurates its 14th president today. Sunil Kumar formally takes the role during a ceremony this afternoon. Kumar joins Tufts from Johns Hopkins University, where he served as provost. He holds a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. Kumar is Tufts' first president of color. Tomorrow afternoon, 25 local jazz ensembles will be playing along the Charles River during a rambling sonic experiment. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports it's a celebration of Boston music and women. Beginning at 2 p.m., the ensembles will put their own spins on the same set list of 16 songs during Jazz Along the Charles. Pianist and composer Zaili Gonzalez-Zamora is co-curator. And that's the beauty of jazz right there. It's unexpected. You don't know what you're going to get. It might be still song you know, but it will be interpreted in so many different ways. All of the songs, which are jazz, pop, even classical, have a relationship to Boston and are by women. Why not? It's about time. 
Jazz Along the Charles kicks off with a world premiere commission by Berklee College of Music drummer and composer Terry Lynn Carrington. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins wrapped up their exhibition season last night with a win. They beat the Rangers 3-1 to in New York. The Bees will begin the regular season Wednesday night. That's when they'll host the Chicago Blackhawks. Dense fog should dissipate by late morning and cloudy skies will gradually clear. We should have a mostly sunny afternoon with highs around 70. Tonight the clouds return and it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow cloudy with highs in the mid-60s and a good chance of showers during the day and into the evening. Sunday, mostly sunny and a high in the mid-60s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. A jailed women's rights activist from Iran has won the 2023 Nobel Peace Prize. Nargis Mohammadi has led a campaign that's become the biggest challenge to the Iranian government since it came to power in 1979. NPR's Lauren Freyer has been following this morning's announcement and joins us now from London. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. So tell us about Nargis Mohammadi. She is a human rights campaigner. She's a journalist, a former physics student, and she is in jail. The Norwegian Nobel Committee today called her a freedom fighter. She's the vice president of a group that's banned in Iran. It's called the Defenders of Human Rights Center, which was actually founded by another Nobel laureate, Shireen Ebadi. Um, the only other Iranian woman to win the Nobel Prize. It's a good friend of hers. Mm. Um, the Nobel Committee said this prize today is for Mohammadi, but also a recognition of the hundreds of thousands of people who've taken to Iran's streets in the past year to protest the Islamic regime's oppression of women. And the Nobel Chair, Barrett Rice Anderson, actually used their slogan when announcing the prize today in Farsi and in English. Son, Sendegi Azadi. Women, life, freedom. Those were the very first words of the announcement, mm. and so that's how we knew it was going to Iranian women this year. Mohammadi is the 19th woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize and the second Iranian woman after Ebadi. You know, as you mentioned, Mohammadi is in prison in Iran. So what are the chances she'll be able to claim her prize? Yeah, I mean, she's currently in Iran's notorious Evin prison, serving multiple sentences for charges that include spreading propaganda against the government. One of Iran's official news agencies has just come out with a statement saying the prize was awarded to her for her, quote, actions against Iran's national security. The Nobel chair today called on Iran to release Mohammadi so that she can come and accept this prize in person in Oslo at a ceremony in December. Her husband has also made some comments this morning 
morning accepting the prize on her behalf and saying it this is for all of Iran. And interestingly, just a couple weeks ago, Mohammadi actually published an essay from behind bars in the New York Times, and the title was pretty telling. It, it was called, The More They Lock Us Up, The Stronger We Become. Wow. Even from behind um, bars, she's sending out these messages. It's yeah. been a little over a year since the start of these nationwide protests in Iran, which were sparked by the death of a woman in custody of Iranian police who'd been detained over how she wore her hijab. What role has Mohammadi played in all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's been a year of Iranian women taking off their headscarves, filming themselves doing it, you know, at incredible personal risk, uploading those clips to social media with a groundswell of support around the world. Iran calls that protest movement Western-led and a distraction. Mohammadi has been behind bars. And even more than a symbolic leader of those protests, she's actually been, like, leading chants on her prison ward, that same slogan, women like freedom. She's been writing letters to the Iranian government calling on it to not give the death penalty to women arrested at these protests. This recent round of protests was sparked, the year-long protest sparked by the death of Masa Amini, you mentioned in Iranian police custody. But now there's actually another case that's captivated people, a teenager who is now in a coma after boarding a train to school one day without her headscarf. It's unclear what happened but activists cast suspicion on those same Iranian morality police. NPR's Lauren Freyer. Thank you for your reporting, Lauren. Thank you. More schools are offering locally grown food in their cafeterias thanks to a federally sponsored farm-to-school lunch program. Here's Harvest Public Media contributor Ray Solomon. Derek Hoffman is poking around a dense row of bushy tomato plants on his 100-acre farm on the outskirts of Greeley, in northern Colorado. He's filling a white plastic bucket with ripe cherry tomatoes that he's already sold to the local school district. These will go to Greeley Evans School District here just down the road. (laughs) What about five five miles from their their warehouse? In about a week, kids will be snacking on them in nearby cafeterias. Want to try a fresh tomato? Like this one at Jackson Elementary, about 10 minutes down the road, where the first graders are helping themselves to the salad bar, while Nutrition Services Director Danielle Bach looks on. Tomatoes, celery, green peppers, all from Hoffman Farms. Hoffman's tomatoes and Bach salad bar are part of a growing farm-to-school movement, revolutionizing the humble school lunch. When farm-to-school programming works as designed, kids fill their trays with fresh, nutritious food, and local farm economies get a major boost. Hoffman's farm-to-school contracts bring in enough money that he was able to quit his off-the-farm job. It's allowed us to grow. It's allowed us to do what we're doing. But while Hoffman and the schools he works with represent the best outcome of farm-to-school programs, they are hardly the norm. Getting local food into schools has proven frustratingly complicated. We often hear that schools and producers initially don't talk the same language. Cindy Long administers the farm-to-school program at the United States Department of Agriculture. Schools think about, oh, I need, you know, 7,500 servings of this. And farmers think in terms of, you know, bushels or crates. Beyond that, Long says the extra cost of local food is another roadblock. So is the need to train cafeteria staff and an admittedly bureaucratic purchasing system. Schools and producers really just needed an ongoing source of support to help take folks from interest to actually being able to execute. Recent policy changes at the federal level make providing that support a new priority. 
Last year, the USDA started funneling unprecedented amounts of money to the effort. At least $260 million directly fund local food purchases and related farm-to-school infrastructure. We have been describing it as trying to drink out of a fire hose. Sunny Baker with the National Farm to School Network says all the federal money is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to give school lunch a head-to-toe makeover and integrate it into local food systems. One of the best things that can come out of this like massive influx of money is going to be that we're developing really incredible examples of how this can work and like learning what's possible. In northern Iowa, for instance, those investments trickled down to the Clear Lake School District in the form of $8,000 grants to buy farm-fresh food through a network of regional food hubs that made local food purchasing a breeze for food services director Julie Udelhofen. As I saw that product come in, the freshness, the color, the flavor, it just made it all worth it. Udelhofen was always interested in farm-to-school programs, but without support, the process was just too burdensome. And she felt stuck with the typical, deliveries of highly processed food from big institutional distributors. Now that she's got a taste of the farm-fresh side of things, she does not want to go back to business as usual. As long as my budget looks good and I can support it, I'm going to get that food in front of the kids. There's just one catch. That fire hose of extra funding isn't permanent. It runs out at the end of this school year. Udelhofen is hoping her local food service can outlive the money. For NPR News, I'm Ray Solomon. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the economics of winning a Nobel Prize. The winner of the 2023 Nobel for Literature, Yoon Fasa, has only sold 12,000 copies of his work in the U.S. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 11, and overcast skies will gradually clear this morning. We'll have temperatures around 70. Tonight, those fall to the low 60s, and it'll be cloudy with a chance for showers. Tomorrow, cloudy mid-60s and a good chance of showers. It dries up for a mostly sunny day on Sunday in the low 60s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, on view now. Learn more at pem.org. Leslie University is laying off a number of faculty members. The school in Cambridge did not say exactly how many people are losing their jobs. The cuts are part of a larger restructuring aimed at reducing expenses. Leslie leaders say the co- those cuts are aimed at programs that have low enrollment or are not what they call core to the mission of the school. Orchard Therapeutics is being bought up by a Japanese firm in a $387 million deal. The company is based in London but has its U.S. headquarters in the seaport. Orchard is known for developing a treatment for a rare metabolic disease. It's available in Europe. The owners of a one-year-old luxury condo building in Boston are bringing in a new marketing firm to jumpstart sales. Owners of the St. Regis on Seaport Boulevard tell the Boston Globe that half of the building's 114 units are unsold. We looked online this morning and found a three-bedroom, four-bath unit available for $9.5 million. It's 845. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's autumn in New England, the time of year when people travel from near and far to see the changing colors of the region's foliage. But the wet summer we had means those colors will likely be less vibrant than usual. Joining us now to tell us what we can expect is meteorologist Jim Salji. He's the fall foliage expert for Yankee Magazine. Good morning. Hey, good morning. So why does all the rain we've gotten mean less vibrant fall colors? There's two reasons why that might be the case. First off, we've seen a lot of fungus on the leaves this year, especially on our sugar maples. And this is causing some of them to drop their leaves early after turning brown. Uh, The other is it's just been so wet that the saps and the sugars are not all that concentrated in the leaves. And we need those sugars to really pop our vibrant red colors. Uh, For those two reasons, yeah, it's a bit more of a pastel or muted year. For the colors that we do get, when do you think those will peak? Uh, So we have the big three-day weekend coming up. Usually that's when the brightest colors are hitting the largest part of northern New England. But you have about five, six weeks for peak color to go all the way from the northern mountains to the southern coasts. Typically around Boston, we'll see the colors peaking in late October or even early November on Boston Common. And where do you think the brightest colors will be? So we've thought that Down East Maine was going to have some really good colors this year. They didn't get all of the rainfall this summer, but unfortunately they got the tail ends of that hurricane a couple weeks ago that kept things warm and wet. Um, So it's really just a battle between how fast that fall weather, the warm days and crisp cool nights can come in to really kickstart these colors now. There'll be great colors everywhere, but there's also going to be some more muted and brown colors too. And I think you said the same for Greater Boston. Is there any indication of where the brightest colors might be around here? So we always like the Blue Hills. They are in a pretty good position this year. There's some fungus in amongst them. Um, But really, Boston itself, the Esplanade, because they have so many non-native trees, they don't typically react to a lot of the stresses that our northern forest does. And that's always going to be a bright area as well. So the urban area might get some of the best colors, it sounds like. It, It very much could be this year, yes. Climate change is expected to bring us consistently wetter weather in New England. So this effect may repeat itself next year and in the years to come. Am I right? Well, we've been the last four years alternating between drought and deluge, and neither of that is ideal for our trees. Uh, We're hoping that the pendulum sticks in the middle one of these years so we can kind of reset. But certainly more extreme weather is something that we're worried about in the northern forest, especially with warmer weather, you know, the sugar maples don't extend much further south in New England. The red oak doesn't extend too much more north in New England. And, you know, what is the balance between these trees going to be in a changing climate? Do you think the duller colors caused by the wet weather will impact how much the area brings in in tourism dollars? Or no, because many people made plans a while ago and will probably just stick with them. I hope that people still go into uh, northern New England in the next couple of weeks. They really need those tourism dollars, Vermont, especially after the floods. And there are going to be some beautiful areas. It's a good year to explore um, different aspects, different slopes, different facing mountains are all going to have different microclimates. And driving around in uh, the fall season, uh, when you do find a beautiful area, it's just going to pop that much more. What about you personally? Where are you heading to see the fall colors? 
this weekend, with the big three-day weekend, I'm going to be headed to the Western White Mountains. And then over the coming weeks, I'm going to try to follow the peak wave. Acadia is going to peak around the 20th. Then I'll head down to maybe the North Shore uh, in the last weeks of October. Jim Salji is a meteorologist and fall foliage expert for Yankee Magazine. Thank you very much. For sure. Thank you. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a look at prehistoric footprints found in New Mexico. Those date back to thousands of years before it was thought people arrived in North America. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Fine Arts Boston, presenting Fashion by Sargent, highlighting over 50 of John Singer Sargent's paintings alongside dresses and accessories featured in his work. Explore how Sargent used fashion to realize his vision in an exhibition that asks, Who Creates Your Image? Opening October 8th. Tickets at MFA.org. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Hiring surged in September with the economy adding more than 330,000 jobs, double what was expected, though the unemployment rate held steady. Dozens are injured and at least two dead following a Russian strike in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv early this morning. 75,000 Kaiser Permanente staff remain off the job as the health care worker strike enters a third day. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. We have some dense fog and some clouds this morning. Those should clear up for a mostly sunny afternoon with temperatures around 70. Tonight it falls to the low 60s and grows cloudy. Saturday, cloudy and mid-60s with a good chance of rain. Sunday, mostly sunny and low 60s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. A big surprise in the September jobs report. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer in for David Boncaccio. The Bureau of Labor Statistics just released its official jobs tally for the month of September. 336,000 jobs were created last month, way more than expected. That's despite high inflation that's led the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates at the fastest pace in four decades. Julia Coronado is founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives. She joins me now live. So, Julia, what's behind this blowout jobs number for September? Well, a lot. There's a lot of sectors that are hiring. Uh, It's not just one funny sector that's driving things. And it came with upward revisions. So this is still just a very strong job market. 
Yeah, I mean, we're getting some real mixed signals from this jobs report because way more jobs were created than economists predicted. But it doesn't look like that will cause inflation to heat up as you would expect. Well, that's right. The unemployment rate stayed at 3.8 percent. It did not go down. And wage growth is actually slowing. So there are some mixed signals in this report. And that makes the, the Fed's decision on what to do next much more complicated. Right, because the Fed has been raising interest rates to try to tame inflation. Julia is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you, Julia. My pleasure. Let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down, with the Dow future down more than 150 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is down at 4.7%. This year's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded today to jailed Iranian activist Nargis Mohammadi. Earlier this week, the 2023 Nobel for Literature went to Norwegian author Yoon Fossa. While he's known in much of the world, he hasn't been a household name in the U.S. Only 12,000 copies of his work have been sold here since 2004, according to Circana. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes looks at how the book industry is preparing for a bump in sales. The North American publisher of several of Yoon Fossa's books is Transit Books. It's less than a decade old and run by Adam Levy and his wife out of their home in the Bay Area. When they learned this week that Fossa won the Nobel... We quickly made coffee and got to work in our living room. <laughs> they had already planned to release two of Foss's works in paperback later this month, including what's been called his magnum opus, Septology. That'll be 5,000 copies each, but now they're looking at printing at least 10,000 additional copies of each work. And Levy notes that printing a book takes up to two months. It's slow. And so one of the tasks for any publisher, really, regardless of your size, is to figure out how you meet a, a huge surge in demand. There could also be demand for Foss's many other works that have yet to be released here. He's very prolific. He does children's books and poetry and essays and short stories and novels. Damien Searles has translated a number of Foss's books into English and expects that work to continue. At perhaps a somewhat faster pace. Meanwhile, publisher Adam Levy hopes others in the industry take note of transit success with its new Nobel laureate and are inspired to take chances on authors who've yet to find an audience in the U.S. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Surging interest rates are intensifying the challenges for the U.S. economy and threatening to derail the Federal Reserve's drive to tame inflation without causing a deep recession. Since midsummer, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note has steadily climbed, causing a spillover rise in other borrowing costs, the cost of mortgages, Auto loans and credit card debt have all risen in response. The collective impact of higher rates across the economy could also weaken the government's own finances. The jump in longer-term rates coincides with other threats from higher gas prices and this week's resumption of student loan payments to auto workers' ongoing strike and the risk of a government shutdown next month. And speaking of that strike, there are reports this morning that GM has made a counteroffer to end the auto workers' strike. We're expecting an update this afternoon from UAW President Sean Fain. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by How We Survive. Climate change is dire, but it does not have to be world-ending. New season of How We Survive from Marketplace, available wherever you get your podcasts.
The union representing film and television actors, SAG-AFTRA, is scheduled to continue negotiations today with studio executives and the alliance representing TV and movie producers. The talks restarted earlier this week. The actors' strike has lasted two and a half months so far. Streaming remains a sticking point in negotiations. As more and more content lands on streaming platforms, actors want to share the revenue. Abraham Ravid, a finance professor at Yeshiva University, says this issue will be hard to nail down. The union representing film and television actors, SAG-AFTRA, is scheduled to continue negotiations today with studio executives and the alliance representing TV and movie producers. The talks restarted earlier this week. The actor's strike has lasted two and a half months so far. Streaming remains a sticking point in the negotiations. As more and more content lands on streaming platforms, actors want to share the revenue. Abraham Ravid, a finance professor at Yeshiva University, says this issue will be hard to nail down. And Netflix produces a movie, then it gives it free to its subscribers. The percentage or anything that's based on viewership is much more problematic than, say, sharing theatrical revenues, because there there's a number. Say I make a million dollars, you can get 2% of this. That's easy. Another point of contention, the use of artificial intelligence in TV and movie production. The Hollywood Writers Union that just ended its strike last week won some guardrails around the use of AI. Ravid thinks it should be even easier for the actors to sort this out. You can do a lot of things with AI within writing. And therefore, if you read the uh, agreement for the writers, there are some things that are left open. For the actors, it's a little simpler because all we're saying here is don't use my image without paying. And that can be easier to agree on and uh, litigate. And while there's no clear timetable for a new contract, Ravid is optimistic about negotiations, especially... And this is APM. Clouds move out by late this morning, and we should have a mostly sunny afternoon in the low 70s. Tonight, low 60s and cloudy with a slight chance of showers. It stays overcast tomorrow, and there's a good chance of rain. We'll have temperatures in the mid-60s, mostly sunny on Sunday in the low 60s. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet, une.edu. Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. Go EndlessEnergy.com. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. For the first time ever, scientists have fully decoded the Y chromosome. Long thought to be the stubby counterpart to the X chromosome, turns out there's far more to the Y than meets the eye. You have a massive amount of genetic creation. Like the structure can be like completely different between different males. Unraveling the secrets of the Y chromosome and maybe of men too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.